Hi, Juliet here with a quick message before this episode starts. Everything you need to be more strategic amid the busyness of the school term is contained in the 170 plus episodes of this podcast. But sometimes you can get there a bit faster with some personalised help. I host a termly online workshop specifically designed to help the support staff within schools to make the shift from being reactive to strategic. Our next workshop is coming up soon and we're going to be reflecting on how things have gone this academic year and strategising for the academic year to come so that you can confidently prioritise your workload, overcome the obstacles that are holding you back and redirect your time and focus onto your priorities. At the end of the session, I promise you're going to be feeling more energised, ready to hit the ground running with a clear plan of action. This term's workshop is going to be run on Thursday the 16th of May, and you can find out more and book your place at www.consultjuliet.co.uk slash plan. I hope to see you there. Now, let's launch into this episode. Welcome to the Independent School Podcast with me, Juliet Corbett. As an executive coach and strategy advisor, I guide senior leaders in the world of education to find their strategic focus, empower their teams and regain control over their time, helping them go from exhausted to strategic. On this podcast, I share the ideas and the tips that I've developed over the years to help the leaders that I've worked with one-to-one so I can help you to focus on your priorities and achieve your goals with confidence and ease. And in this episode, we're going to be diving back into the subject of fundraising campaigns. And this is the second of a two-part series looking at this topic. So last week, I spoke about the five essential phases of a fundraising campaign, being planning, feasibility, quiet phase, public phase and stewardship. Now this week, I'm going to talk to you about how those are best practice phases of a campaign because they achieve certain things which minimise the risk of a campaign not achieving its target and maximise the success of the campaign. But actually, I want to take it a step further because we can break some of these rules, but we have to know what we're doing. And the way that I want to frame this is through the idea of mastery of a particular topic. So I was listening to something the other day and it put it really, some training that put it really succinctly as to how we develop mastery of a particular topic. And it talked about the three stages, the first one being a basic cognitive understanding. So that's what I talked about last week. It's basically the understanding that there are these five phases, that they're really important. That then develops through into advanced cognitive understanding, which again, I touched on last week, which is understanding why each phase is important and how it has a strategic place in that whole fundraising campaign's structure. So basically, the advanced cognitive understanding is really getting to grips with why each of those five phases are important, why they have to happen in that order, what's the essential components that we're trying to achieve in each of those phases. Now, I'm sort of in of the belief that you probably need to have run a campaign yourself or be, be highly involved in a campaign to really get to that advanced cognitive understanding, to have actually done it and seen it yourself in action. 
Although I'm willing to concede that maybe with a little bit of talking to other people who have gone through that process and doing some reading around the topic, maybe you can also develop that advanced cognitive understanding. But then the third phase is the mastery stage. And you only really get to mastery stage when you're able to adjust that framework successfully because you know the role that each of those phases plays within that structure of the campaign um, kind of unfolding over time. You know instinctively how if you change something or remove something or change the order around, you know because you can anticipate what's going to be missing in that process, and then how to replicate that in another form. So what I'm trying to do on this episode, I'm hoping to do on this episode, is to shortcut a little bit by sharing my mastery of this framework so that I can shortcut you to getting to the point where you can play around with these rules a little bit more. But it comes with a fairly big health warning kind of on the label, and that is, absolutely, I'm going to talk about how you can break the rules but I don't think you should be doing this without having a really good understanding within your team. So that might be a very experienced director of development. It might be having someone who's guiding you from the outside in terms of consultancy or in terms of fundraising coach and so on, someone who really understands it because this is definitely advanced technique that I'm talking about. And in fact, in a way, recognising that there is a, a mastery required before we start playing around with breaking these rules actually underpins how important the, the structure, which is the best practice structure around these five phases, how important that is in the process. Okay, so the way that I'm going to do this, I'm going to select seven underlying principles, which is the key reasons why that five-phased campaign structure works. I'm sure there's more than seven. I'm sure I've probably missed some, in which case let me know if you can identify the ones. But these seven alone, I think, account for a good proportion of why moving through those phases in turn is really effective in terms of maximising the success of fundraising campaigns. Okay, so let's go through them each in turn. I'm going to explain how the structured five-phase model achieves each of these seven underlying principles and then where you can play with those rules and break those rules a little bit. Okay, so the first one is clarifying your fundraising priorities. Now, Within the planning phase of the five phases model, we have to identify the strategic priorities which fundraising is going to help fund for the school. And I don't just mean, I'm I'm also tempted to call them fake priorities. (laughs) I'm talking about genuinely, critically important strategic priorities, which you're going to ask donors to partner with you to make a reality. Now, quite often, one of the reasons why a fundraising project will get through to the kind of halfway through the feasibility stage and then actually not progress to the next stage is when a school has identified a project which isn't a true strategic priority. Donors understand that. They they see through that. (laughs) They see it through it very, very quickly. If you can't justify why it's strategically important for your school to be focusing on this project at this moment, it really means that it's going to fail that feasibility phase. So during the planning phase of a fundraising campaign, we always think about what are the fundraising priorities that we're going to be addressing. And we test internally, initially in the planning phase, and then with prospects within the feasibility stage, why is this a priority? Now, if we're not going to stick 
to the campaign phases model, we have to ensure that we're still going through a phase, a stage in the process, which is very clearly understanding that your fundraising project needs to be a priority for your school. So that's the underlying principle number one, clarifying your fundraising priorities. Number two is the importance of listening to your prospects or your prospective donors and really properly listening, not just listening to affirm what you already think, but listening with an open mind to hearing deep into what they're thinking around their values, their sense of commitment to the school, their sense of loyalty, their sense of where the school needs to be going next. Really listening to your donors and prospects so that you can understand what drives them, what motivates them, why they want to be part of your success. Now, within the campaign structure, that's the feasibility phase. It's built in to that phase that you will go and talk to lots of prospects who have the capability to give at a really significantly high level in terms of their donation size. And it's built around asking them questions where you want to know the answers and done properly. You have to be open to listening to what those prospects are telling you. Now, of course, we can recreate that in a different way. We don't necessarily need to go through a feasibility study to achieve that listening process. And one of the ways that I talked about last time was this um, myth, if you like, that that feasibility study needs to be done by an external consultant. One of the ways that I frequently recommend people break those traditional rules is saying, no, you can do this yourself. Someone needs to be listening and feeding back what the prospects think. It doesn't need to be an external consultant. It can be you as the lead fundraiser within your school. So even if we change the feasibility format, we still need to be listening to donors and prospects. And we need to listen with enough structure that at some point, we're able to collate those insights together into some kind of written report, kind of feedback document. And that then decisions about the future of that fundraising project is based on that listening process. So basically what I'm telling you is you can tweak the feasibility stage, but you have to be listening to prospects. It's really important to be doing that early on, not just later in the project. The third underlying principle, which is built into the the standard fundraising campaign structure, is the critical importance of a really strong case for support. And not just a strong case for support, but a tested and flexible case for support. Now, one of the problems that I've sometimes seen with fundraising campaigns that very strictly follow the five phases model is that the, cam- that the case for support tends to get locked down too early and it, it isn't flexible enough as you go through the process. This idea of listening doesn't stop at the feasibility stage. It continues all the way through the campaign and definitely at least to the end of the quiet phase in terms of really active listening. And that listening and that feedback means that your case for support has to be has to be fluid, has to be able, you have to be able to, to adapt it and change it over time so that it's getting stronger and stronger as you're testing it over time. So again, we don't have to do that just in campaign phases, but we have to make sure we have a process built into whatever is going to replace those phases which enables us to ensure we've got a strong, tested and flexible case for support that really compels donors to at least listen to our thoughts around why this project is really important to the school and the transformation 
that it's going to have on individuals within your community. So that's the third underlying principle, having a strong, tested, flexible case for support. Moving on to the fourth underlying principle, and that is this core concept through the whole of educational fundraising that we want to be focusing on those who are capable of giving leadership gifts. Now, for those who are not in the know of all the fundraising jargon, a leadership gift is a gift which is at the top of your your giving pyramid. It's one of the largest gifts that you're going to be receiving for a particular project. And it's one of the gifts which is actually going to be fundamental in making that project a success and reaching your target. We normally see within any size of fundraising project, large or small, that the majority of the funds come from a small number of very generous donors. So therefore, we want to focus our time, our resource, our efforts on talking to those who are capable of giving these significant gifts, these leadership gifts. Now, that is created, that opportunity, that focus is created within the quiet phase. So again, we don't necessarily need to be doing it within a full campaign structure quiet phase, but we do have to have the mindset combined with um, the way that we work within our fundraising team, whether that's just one of you, whether that's multiple people sitting within a team, the way that you're organising your diary to make sure that you have the time to focus on the major gifts fundraising. Now, this is one of the things actually which I think you really don't necessarily need to achieve it through a quiet phase. You should be doing this all the time anyway. But the quiet phase of a campaign is a very good way to be focusing your your energy and your effort during that particular phase of the campaign. Moving on to our fifth underlying principle, and this is critical. And I think this probably is the biggest reason why we normally do stick to the five campaign phases. The fifth underlying principle is that you only go public when your target has been tested. And by tested, I mean a little bit more than just talking to people. I mean, actually, you're starting to get significant amount of the target pledged before you go public. This is something which, when you break this rule, it can have really difficult consequences for your school. And I've worked with a couple of schools over the years. Obviously, I used to say this in a very anonymized way because people don't like to talk about it where there has been a campaign which has not been successful and then you've had to go back to donors and say actually this project isn't going to be able to go ahead can we talk about where else we could be using this particular donation and those are they're delicate conversations sometimes but not always they're difficult conversations but they are always a very time-consuming process and they put at risk the reputation of your school although handled well It doesn't mean necessarily that it's a reputational risk, but it's very time consuming for the people who are handling that process, going back to to donors and saying this project isn't going to be able to go ahead. It's even more difficult when it's been said publicly that this project is is on the, the fundraising list. Now, this is one of the absolute core reasons why you have a feasibility stage to test that target And then a quiet phase to really prove that you're getting donations of the level that are going to make your target achievable. The sixth underlying principle is that you're talking to more people through every phase. Now, this is really important. I mean, if you're going to be fundraising of any, doing fundraising of any kind, that's regular giving, legacy giving, as well as the major gifts fundraising, one of the best ways that you can actually increase your fundraising income 
is simply by talking to more people. And the reason that works is because obviously you talk to more people, you're ready to ask more people, more people are likely to say yes, although obviously people will still say no as well. But in talking, hopefully you are also listening, which is obviously what we've already talked about, listening to people's feedback. So when you've got a quiet phase and a public phase with a set target, whether that's behind the scenes in the quiet phase or public um, target in the public phase, you have so much incentive to go and talk to more people because you know you need to talk to people to reach that target. But actually, there's no reason why we can't create that rhythm into our week of just getting out there, talking to more people, whether that's in person, whether that's on video call, whether it's through um, email and social media, if we're thinking about regular giving, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Talking to more people is one of the reasons why the campaign structure generates better results. And then the seventh and final underlining principle is that a fundraising campaign structure communicates urgency. It gives a sense of why a donor should give now, because it enables the school to celebrate success by reaching a target. Now, actually, this is the one I think I want to question the most strongly. I think that we shouldn't have to create urgency by overlaying a campaign structure. In my experience, although I'm sure there probably is data out there, I haven't specifically got that to hand, but in my experience, going to somebody and saying, we need you to make a donation this year because we need to reach our target, is a pretty weak argument, to be honest. We should be able to say, regardless of any campaign structure and targets, we need you to make a donation this year because we want this impact to happen as soon as possible. We want the transformation that we've been talking about to happen quickly. And therefore, this is an urgent project. And therefore, we urgently need your support. We really shouldn't have to create that urgency. And if we are having to create the urgency, I think we need to look at, firstly, is this genuinely a strategic priority? And secondly, have you created a really strong case for support, which communicates the transformation that your project is happening? Because it should be in there anyway, as an urgency. So one of the things that I'm thinking is that there are therefore some underlining principles of fundraising campaigns, this structure, it's five-phase structure, which are really important we want to retain. And my feeling is that if you're not highly experienced, you, you wouldn't call yourself a master of fundraising and having a mastery of this whole process, the easiest way to get a successful campaign is to follow the best practice five-phase model, which I talked about in more detail last week. However, if you are really feeling comfortable with fundraising and as a school you have the internal expertise and or can bring in some external expertise to help you, so long as you're fulfilling these underlying principles, and of course there may well be others, in which case I invite you to to list out all the other things, so long as you're recreating those in a different format, I think that's fine. And the key reason why I think this has come to the fore now in terms of educational fundraising with an independent school setting is because when you're thinking about bursaries and or schools partnerships fundraising, you can have a little bit more flexibility in your target and your time frame. You can say, well, we're going to raise X amount within the next three years to make it possible for us to award X number of bursaries, for example. But that's never going to be like the final target. There's always going to be 
another iteration of that following this first phase. So maybe it doesn't matter so much that we have a published target. Maybe there is enough urgency in our case for support that we need donations this year to enable people to join us in year seven, so the beginning of secondary school or into sixth form next academic year. So we can have the impact on young people who have maybe a disadvantaged background as soon as possible rather than waiting. So I think there are ways that we can question all of this, especially around bursaries. I think it's much more difficult to question it around um, capital campaigns or around buildings campaigns, where it's much more important that we do follow the phases, because obviously we don't want to be in a situation where we've raised half the money for a capital build. Whereas if we raise half the money for bursaries, we can just award half the number of bursaries. It's a slightly more iterative fundraising process. And just as we wrap up this episode, I want to make a couple of key points. So firstly, we know from the IDP benchmarking here in the UK, looking at a UK sample of stalls, and I'll put a link to that benchmarking in the episode notes, that giving within schools that are in campaign mode or in a campaign time frame is higher than giving within schools which are not in campaign time frame. And I think there are two potential reasons for this. Now, both could be true. There might be a bit of both going on, but there's two potential reasons for this. The first potential reason is the one that I've spent this whole episode talking about. And that is because the campaign structure of having phases harnesses all of these underlying principles of good fundraising campaigns, it means that we know that we're doing these seven things. We're identifying fundraising priorities, listening to donors, having a strong case for support, focusing on leadership gifts, only going public with a target when it's been tested, talking to more people and communicating urgency. We're doing all those things because we're in campaign. Therefore, we're getting better results. But there is another alternative, which I'm just going to mention at the end here and then leave you to contemplate. There is a very influential fundraiser, Jim Langley of Langley Innovations. He's very um, active on LinkedIn. If you're if you enjoy LinkedIn, then make sure you're connected to him or following him. So you're getting his posts. They're always very insightful. And he's great at questioning things that everybody takes for granted. And some of those questions um, have been around this idea of the campaign structure. Now, he's talking largely to a US market where I think, generally speaking, there is a higher level of mastery among more educational fundraisers and therefore playing with the rules is safer, if you like, slightly different in other environments, potentially. But his point at the end of one of his LinkedIn posts, which I'm going to quote now and then link in the episode notes, his point was... It might be the case that campaigns raise more money because campaigns, quote, harvest more than they sow. And that is why after so many campaigns, we have dramatically fewer donors. One of his takes is therefore potentially the campaign structure encourages fundraisers and donors to give within the campaign timeframe which then depletes donations outside of the campaign timeframe. And that actually the, his, his point is that due to leaders wanting successful campaigns to, to showcase on their CVs because of consultants who want those successful campaigns to have on their list of testimonials and so on, it's potentially the case that people are pushing so hard in campaign mode that then when they take a break from campaign between campaigns, the number of donors really drops off because you've got fatigue amongst those donor communities. And he's then questioning, is that a really healthy way, a sustainable way to be fundraising from an educational community, especially because 
we know that that's a, a smaller, more um, a, a community with more boundaries around it, more specific group of people than a general campaign out to the local public. So I've covered a lot of topics in this episode, and it might be, if you're feeling a bit lost, that you might need to go back to last week's episode and hear me talk about these five phases of the campaign more. As I said at the beginning, this is slightly more advanced technique, if you like, compared to the things that I covered last week. But one of the things I really invite you to do is to share this episode with other people. If this has got you thinking about questioning why we do things the way we do them and whether or not we could be changing things, especially for our bursaries campaigns, do share this with a friend in the sector. If you think it's a helpful please, you're doing them a favour and you're doing me a favour by spreading the word about this podcast. That's it for this week. If you think that I can help in any way in helping you to understand how to structure your fundraising campaign, just get in touch with me. I do a lot of fundraising coaching, both one-to-one and with group groups of fundraisers as well within schools. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. And don't forget that if we're planning to think strategically, we all need the space to breathe the time to learn and the courage to adapt. Have a strategic week. Bye-bye.